You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. And we're continuing our study through uh, chapter 19. And we're on the subject of marriage and divorce. And uh, thank you for your your patience as we go through um, this portion of Scripture together. It's an area of Scripture that you can't really hurry through because uh, there's a lot to cover. And uh, we've seen in this study of Matthew 19 the confrontation that Jesus had with the Pharisees in verses 1 through 9. And uh, we saw how they not only wanted to discredit him, but they actually sought to destroy him uh, like they did John the Baptist. Like John the Baptist was destroyed, they thought if they could bring up the subject of divorce and Jesus would take a hard stance against divorce, then Herod Antipas would get um, ticked off at Jesus and have his head on a platter too. So that was their motivation. But let me read the text for you, and, um, and then we can get into what we're going to close out with today. Matthew 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of Your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by man, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So we've been in this text for several weeks, and we've seen the confrontation, and they ask first, who is it, why is it, uh, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause, because that's what they believe. That's what their religion taught them. That's what the culture of the day taught them. And they really set up Jesus, and as I said in the opening, they wanted to discredit him and destroy him. Well, look at how he answers his first reply, and he gives us, and we've been over this, and we're just going over it briefly now, he gives us God's view of marriage. He said, first of all, in verse 4, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And we talked about how marriage involves an absolute definition. It's between one man and one woman for life. Secondly, marriage involves absolute commitment. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. And we talked about that word cleave, meaning a strong glue that just bonds together. And then the third one is absolute or the third one is absolute unity. Marriage involves absolute unity. Verse 5. He said because you are un- he is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. They're no longer two but one. And then fourthly, marriage involves absolute reverence. 
It's because it's what God has created. He has joined the parties together. And it says no man has the right to separate that. And so he, we see that very clearly. And uh, he, they, they go on and they ask him basically, well, why did Moses allow this to happen? And uh, the whole verse there, he, they kind of rip out of context, and we've been over, over that. Because he says in verse 7, why did Moses say, uh, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? And he didn't command it, he allowed it. And so God never commands divorce. We started out this series saying two things. First of all, God hates divorce. That view will never change. Secondly, if you have been through a divorce, whatever the circumstances were, you're not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. That God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's restoration is available to you personally. Maybe not uh, the, the marriage won't be restored, if you've already remarried and things like that, we we're going to get into that next week. But God's grace and his mercy is available to you. And he answers them basically, and he tells us in verse 8 that it's because of the hardness of our hearts, of their hearts, that God allowed this. Divorce is always caused by sin. And divorce is always against God's plan was the second thing we looked at. And There are allowances for divorce. We're going to get into this a little bit more today. And so last week, we asked ourselves the question as we began our study, why is it so hard to maintain God's ideal in a marriage? Why is it so difficult? You think it wouldn't be as hard as it is. And we looked at how in Genesis, the Bible clearly says that when sin entered into this world, Part of the consequences of that sin was the curse. And part of the curse was upon the marriage covenant itself. The roles within marriage got messed up because of the curse. And we learned how originally man was supposed to be the provider, the leader of the home, the protector. And the woman was to be the helpmate, the helper, the companion, the supporter. And we saw how those original God-given roles within the covenant of marriage is now challenged forever as a result of sin. And it says that her desire shall be for her husband in Genesis. That's not talking about sexually. That's talking about the woman wants to control the husband. That's exactly what it means. Because a little later in chapter 4 of Genesis, it says how sin is crouching at the door. It wants to control dealing with their sons. And his rule, from that point on, the man's rule is to rule over the woman. And so we have this distorted set of roles now within the covenant of marriage because of sin. Originally, God didn't set it up that way. We looked at how they were to rule and reign together in the Garden of Eden before sin came. And they didn't even have an issue. And yet now, because of sin, there's this major issue, and it's been an issue in all cultures, in all societies. Man is constantly trying to keep women down, and women are constantly trying to usurp the role of men within the covenant of marriage. 
But even with all those <laughs> changes in the roles and, and this, the, the, the mark of sin now upon the marriage, we, looked, we began to look last week at God's word and God's values, and we realized that God's ideals, God's values do not change. God still hates divorce today, beloved, as much as he did before. Nothing's changed. But we looked at the story of Hosea and Gomer, and we noticed how Hosea went to every extreme to regain his wife, who was but a harlot. And he went out of his way. Why? Because he wanted to live with a harlot the rest of his life? I don't think so. I think because he was committed to the marriage covenant, he understood what the role of marriage was. And so today I want to ask you, well, what makes a marriage then? Some people say, well, if you have sex with somebody, then that's, you know, in God's eyes you're married. No, you're not. That can't be further, furthest from the truth. If that was the case, I mean, there wouldn't be any fornication. As soon as you slept with somebody, you'd be married to them. doesn't make any sense. And so what is the definition of marriage? What God has joined together, he says, don't let man divorce. Don't let man separate. Well, what makes a marriage then? Marriage is not just made up of a sexual relationship. You have a definition there, I think, in your outline. There's one up on the screen. How would you define marriage? Here's how I define it. Marriage is the binding covenant of a lifelong pledge of companionship between one man and one woman, period. That's what it is. There's no wiggle room in the Word of God for the definition of marriage. You can allow the courts to do whatever they want and the gay community to redefine it all they want. It doesn't matter. It's kind of like me sitting up here saying, no, you're not saved by Jesus, you're saved by Buddha. Well, that's not going to affect a lot of you. Why? Because you have the truth of the Word of God and you understand what the Word of God says on the subject of salvation. And he says very clearly, you can't come to the Father unless you come through the Son, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And trust in his sacrifice. And trust in his ability to forgive your sins. When you cry out to him with a sincere heart and ask in repentance for forgiveness. You understand that clearly. Why is it when God speaks so clearly on salvation, we're readily to accept it. But when God speaks so clearly on marriage and divorce, oh, well, I think there's wiggle room there. No, there's not. There's simply not. Marriage is a binding covenant of a lifelong pledge of companionship between one man and one woman. Anytime that happens, anytime two people make that covenant, that pledge to each other, and I'll say this, whether they're saved or not, is irrelevant. See, somehow in the church we think, well, they're not Christians, so it's okay for them to get a divorce. No, it's not. It grieves the heart just as much as two people who are Christians when they get a divorce. Why? Because marriage is something that God created. He came up with this. God ordained it. It's a God-created union. And he says clearly there should never be divorce. And that's what Jesus clearly is saying in Matthew 19 to his cohorts, the, the, uh, to his opposition there, the Pharisees, who are trying to trick him and destroy him. 
I want to take just a second and look back at Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 50. Because I, I want to spend a little time here because it's important for us to understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew. Now, in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, the Lord is confronting a Israel that is disobedient. They're sinning. And he's talking about them as, as this, his, his wife. And look at what he says in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? He asked the question. Where is your divorce certificate, God says? And the answer is they don't have one. Why? Because God hadn't divorced them. In other words, he's saying, how dare you join yourself to all these idols, because that's what they were doing. They're committing spiritual adultery in every way. They abandoned the God of their creation. And they abandoned the worship of the true God for false gods. And what he's saying is, how dare you leave me, your husband? This is what God is saying. Oh, Israel, who are you to do that? Where's your divorce? What gives you the right to go out and court these pagans and worship these other gods? That's what God is asking Israel. And basically saying, have I divorced you? And the answer is, of course, he hasn't. But interesting, turn over to Jeremiah chapter 3. Now remember... Jeremiah comes after Isaiah. It's been about 700 years from what we just read in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. 700 years he's been saying, stop your idol worship, Israel. Stop it. Stop with the spiritual adultery. Stop joining yourselves to other husbands, to other deities. God is just put up with 700 years of his wife Israel going after other relationships. And finally, after 700 years, look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 8. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel... I had sent her away, what's it say? With a decree of divorce. With a decree of divorce, a bill of divorce, a certificate of divorce. Well, guess who's doing the divorcing here? It's God. After 700 years, he divorced Israel. That's what it says. That's the analogy that he's using. And why did he do it? He did it because they were continually committing adultery. They were continually going after idols. They were continually breaking that covenant that they shared. 
Well, what is the basis of divorce in the Old Testament? We've looked at this. It's adultery. Because the only way you could break a marriage commitment was through adultery. Because if you committed adultery, what happened to you, according to the law? Right? You got executed. That's how serious God takes the marriage covenant. And if your partner's dead, then you're free to go marry. But we also looked at different people, David, other people, that God was gracious enough and he didn't take the life of the person committing adultery. He didn't do it. And what Jesus is saying in Matthew 19 is divorce was permitted, but only when the hardness of the heart could never be resolved. I mean, it took our God 700 years to get to that point because of his love and his patience with Israel. I hear Christian women on occasion, oh, my my husband, he looks at a woman wrong, he's gone. And if he would ever sleep with another woman, he'd be dead. I'd kill him on the spot. Where's the grace? Where's the forgiveness in that? And to be real frank, I've heard men say the same things about their wife. I mean, what did we just learn in Matthew 18 about forgiveness? 70 times 7. See, sometimes the simple fact is that two people are just miserable in a relationship because they're self-centered and they're seeking their own desires and they're not willing to give anything. So you have Two sinful people in the confines of a marriage relationship. And as a result, what's the atmosphere like? It's just miserable. Because neither one's willing to budge. Neither one's willing to do it God's way. And so what do they do? They look for any way out. Oh, you just blink. Your head just sways a little bit, mister, in the wrong direction. You're out of here. No grace at all. That's not what Christ teaches his people. It's just not. It took 700 years for God to get to the point where he said, okay, that's it. I'm not putting up with this anymore. But it says in Matthew that it's this divorce was decreed because of hardness of heart. So you know what? There's people within Christianity who say, oh, you know, nope, you can't divorce for any reason whatsoever. I disagree with that. As we're clearly seeing, God himself divorced Israel. And it's such an important passage because God does not go around doing things that aren't right. The last time I checked, we serve a holy God. God doesn't give us illustrations of his own behavior, and then he says, okay, uh, here's what I'm doing, but don't you do that. See, he's not like us. It's not like some parents who say, oh, do what I say, don't do what I do. We don't serve a God like that. So that's why it grieves me that people come along and they say there's no grounds for divorce at all that's just simply not true 
but it's definitely as a result of a prolonged, patient dealing with somebody who's just totally unrepentant, irreconcilable case of adultery. That's it. And that's what the Lord is indicating. And just for your information, turn over a couple more chapters in Jeremiah there because we see the picture of God's grace and his forgiveness in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The Lord says this to Israel. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, what's it say? A new covenant, right? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. What's the Lord going to do? He's going to marry them again. He's going to get married to his first wife, Israel. And that affirms, beloved, that God was no longer their husband because he says they broke the covenant. So he has to make a new covenant. So there is allowable divorce, as we see from the Word of God in the Old Testament, for adultery. You might be asking, well, why didn't God just kill him? Earlier you said that God hates divorce so much when you commit adultery, you're dead. So why, why isn't this happening? I think it's God's grace, first of all, because we serve a gracious God. I mean, you think of the, the New Testament church, you remember Ananias and Sapphira, and they died for not giving what they promised to the Lord. They, they lied to the Holy Spirit. And God killed him on the spot. I mean, if God was doing that today, our, our churches would probably be empty. Why doesn't God do that? It's his patience with us. It's his grace. God establishes examples. God establishes certain illustrations for us to heed his call. But I also think another reason was simply because John MacArthur points this out, and I thought it was an interesting point. He said that there wasn't enough people around that were pure enough to execute those who were committing adultery. That's how prevalent divorce was. If God would have enforced this execution for adultery, all the executioners would have had to have been executed. <laughs> There's nobody that could fulfill it. Nobody measured up. Remember in John 8, when we learned about the woman in adultery, and they all had their stones, and they're all ready to pelt them at this poor woman. Because they caught her in the act. And the man just hightailed it out of there. They didn't chase him. No, we got the woman. That's the place of women. That's the place that women had in that kind of society. 
They were ready to stone her. And Jesus says, what? Let him who without sin, right? Cast the first stone. And what did they do? <laughs> they dropped their stones and they laughed. Why? Because they realized, whoa, we've all done this. That's how prevalent adultery and divorce and everything was in that society. And so we see here in the Old Testament God's ideal. And what Jesus is doing in Matthew 19, he's simply restating God's ideal. God never intended divorce for any reason. That's his ideal. And when there was adultery, the partner died. That's how sacred God thought of the covenant of marriage. He didn't want you to commit adultery. You could die as a result. But because of his graciousness, and because men were so sinful, and where there's a constant continuation of an illicit affair or adultery within a relationship... He said, you know what, I'm going to permit it in that case. The Old Testament permission was only designed to meet man's unique practical problems that he created in his own imperfect sinful world. And adultery is the only thing that can break that bond. That's a hard thing to hear in our society today. And if it doesn't break the bond by death, if God is gracious to that person and lets them live, then it may be broken by divorce. It's a, really, you might think of it as a, a, a gracious act upon God, upon the person who is actually committing the adultery. Because God could actually kill that person. He would be totally just in, in executing that person. Because that's what his word says. but he allows them to live. Why? So that they may come to repentance, so that they could come and be reconciled and seek forgiveness. He doesn't just kill them on the spot. Now, if you stop and you think about it, you have two people in a marriage, one's an adulterer, and they just continue. They continue in this illicit affairs, and just that's, that's their life. That's it. They don't care about anything. Very selfish individual. The other person's trying to make it work, but it's just not happening. So you know what God is saying? Because of the hardness of heart involved with that adulterating person, I'm going to grant the grace for this person who is in this marriage. If there's a divorce there, you know what? You're free. You're free. Because that person would be dead if I was actually carrying out my law. But you know what? I'm going to be gracious to that person and let them live. But why should the person who's not party to the adultery suffer in that case? That wouldn't be right. And so that's why these divorces were permitted. If they don't repent, they'll be in hell forever, the Bible says. So God is gracious to them. He allows the adulterer to live. He allows that divorce to take place. It's not his ideal. God hates divorce. 
but it's because of the hardness of their hearts. I mean, just because one party in a relationship turns out to be an adulterer and is out running around doesn't mean the other person, who's totally innocent, has to be suffer. Or if they get a divorce, it doesn't mean that they have to go celibate the rest of their life. They're free to remarry. He isn't gracious to the one who's sinning and not gracious to the other person in the relationship. And so where there is grounds for divorce, there must also be grounds for remarriage. We'll get into this a little bit more next week. But the purpose, the allowed purpose of divorce was to show mercy to the guilty and not to sentence the innocent one to a lifelong singleness or celibate life of loneliness. He allows them to remarry. That isn't God's ideal. That's his kind of fix-it to the problem that man has created. And that's what Jesus is pointing out in Matthew 19. Because of the hardness of your heart, this is what has happened. Well, that brings us to the clarification. The disciples are listening to this whole dialogue with the Pharisees. They're listening to the whole thing. They're right there. And at this point, in the text here, the Pharisees go somewhere. They probably feel guilty. And the reason they probably feel guilty is because they were probably divorcing their wives at rapid measure, just like the rest of society was doing. They were made by Jesus into be adulterers. And they were standing there, and they had to face the reality of the truth, of God's truth. Somewhere, they go somewhere, we don't know. But apparently, at this time, the disciples literally are just focused on what Jesus is saying. And so the scene moves into a house there in verse 10. And it says, the disciples said to him, now they, they, they need some clarification on this. They're, they're, they're looking at Jesus and they're going, you've got to be kidding me. This is the way it is? And so the Lord sits down with the disciples Because I'm sure that he had some kind of a dialogue with them from the time the Pharisees left, from the time they were walking into the house. I'm sure it just wasn't complete silence. We don't know what the conversation was, but I'm sure that they were talking about this subject matter. But all we're privy to is what happens when they get in the house and they're sitting together with his disciples and they begin to ask him a question. They they, they want to know, wait a minute, we, we have to get some clarification on what you just said, Jesus. Because the strength about his teaching on marriage and divorce had left a, just an impression on them. It shocked them, frankly. Because Jesus has not extended the Old Testament law. He simply reaffirmed it. He didn't say, oh, yeah, yeah, you can go divorce anybody you want. No, he didn't say that. He said, no, no divorce except for adultery. Death. I mean, if you stop and think about it, if God killed the adulterers with capital punishment from Leviticus, there would never be any divorce. 
there would never be any divorce. But God in his grace has let some adulterers live so divorce can be a merciful concession. There's this hard-hearted part of the marriage that's irreconcilable. There's still a place for forgiveness where there's repentance. So it's really got them wondering, what are you teaching us? See, you have to understand the disciples were raised in their society. They were raised in there with all their religious beliefs. Come out of Judaism, the, all, the, all the, the Pharisaical writings about marriage and divorce. They weren't the pure word of God. As we said before, the Pharisees always took the word of God and they diluted it. They perverted it to their own liking. As a matter of fact, here are some of the the sayings that the rabbis used to say concerning divorce. Here's what the disciples probably were taught as they were growing up in their culture. They were raised in a culture where divorce was actually a virtue, if you can believe that or not. In the Talmud of the rabbis, it says this, Among those who will never behold the face of hell is he who has had a bad wife. Such a man is saved from hell because he's expediated his sins on earth. In other words, if you're in a bad marriage, don't worry about hell. Your hell's right here. Now, it may feel that way, but that's not what the Word of God says. That's what the Pharisees say. Another quote, a bad wife is like leprosy to her husband. What is the remedy, the Pharisee asks? Here's the answer. Let him divorce her and be cured of his leprosy. They had no high view of marriage whatsoever. They also wrote this. If a man has a bad wife, it is his religious duty, listen to this, to divorce her. This is what the culture of Judaism taught at the time of Jesus. This is what the religious leaders taught them. If you got a bad wife, you know what? It's your religious duty to divorce her. So you, can you imagine? Here's Jesus teaching, no, 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 no divorce. One man, one woman, committed for life. They're just scratching their head going, that's not what's going on, Jesus. You've got to be kidding me. That's not what we've been taught. Jesus says, only mercifully will God concede a divorce. And so he, they have the natural response. Look at verse 10. Here's what the disciples say. They said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> In other words, if I've got to get into this deal of marriage, and it's a commitment, one man, one woman, unity, created by God, for life. I don't think I'm going to go there, Jesus. Sorry. That's what they're saying. Because they understood the seriousness of what Jesus was explaining to the Pharisees. 
In other words, if you can't get into that deal and get out somehow, I mean, what if she can't cook? What if she's burning the toast every morning? See, in the Pharisees' mind, trust me, they would say, hey, divorce her, get a new wife. That's exactly what happened. Well, you know what? I don't like this one's hair. I'd divorce you. Okay, fine. Find another one. That's, that's the, as low as it can get. But that's the culture in which Jesus lived. These religious leaders would divorce their wife for anything. Simply because they wanted another one. And now Jesus is saying, nah, it doesn't work that way. No divorce outside of adultery, period. I think they totally understood what Jesus was getting across, but I don't agree with the reaction. I don't agree with the disciples' conclusion. Because all of a sudden, they're looking at marriage and they're going, this is what it is? Last week, on Wednesday, Al and Merlin Swanson celebrated their 69th wedding anniversary. 69 years! That's not their age, okay? (laughs) That's how long they have been together in the covenant of marriage. I I still struggle with that. By the way, they're not here today because they they traveled back east. Oh, he is here. Oh, okay. Next week. Okay, sorry, Al. Totally overlooked you. Sorry if I embarrassed you. No, he was supposed to go this week away, but he's here, so praise God. But that is simply amazing. And you know what? You know what society says today? You've got to be kidding me. 69 years with one, the same lady? That's what their culture said. No way. I'll get rid of her just as soon as I can. All they had to say is they divorced you three times and they're out of there. Didn't matter. Just kind of crazy. I mean, we, we don't even understand that, I mean, not that, you know, people don't have an idea of marriage as a commitment and things. That's true. But you know what? Today in our society, that's exactly how people look at marriage. They understand it's a commitment. I mean, who wants to go down the aisle and say, okay, you know what, after we get married, let's go off with our old friends and, and, and we'll have sexual relationships with them and then we'll come back together maybe a couple times a week. But then, you know, I, I want to be free. I mean, people may say that, but that's a, that's a perversion in that relationship. Definitely. No one would sign up for that. In the deep heart of men and women, they want a commitment why do you have a ceremony? Why do you have people come as, as to testify what you're doing? You're, you're in the presence of your friends and your family, and you're standing before God, and you're, you're saying, hey, we're being joined together as one. And usually at the end of any ceremony, the pastor will say, and what God has joined together, let no man, what? Separate. That's a commitment. That's definitely a commitment. But unfortunately, today we're filled with relationships that are so focused on the, uh, the romantic aspect of a relationship 
Remember when you were first dating? Those little butterflies you'd get in your stomach? When she'd call or you'd call? I'm here to tell you, beloved. I mean, my wife and I went through that kind of stuff. But I'm the first one to tell you, you know what? That stuff doesn't last. <laughs> it just doesn't last. It just doesn't. Sometimes I'll be down here at the church. My wife will call me. Hello. Grace Bible Church. Oh, hi, dear. It's like, okay. The conversation goes on for a couple minutes. You know, I just want to scream, just tell me what you want. Just give me the bottom line. Do you need some bread? Do you need some eggs? I'm in the middle of something here. <laughs> I can remember back in our relationship when my wife would call. And I'd be like, oh, oh gee. We talked till 2, 3 in the morning. And we had to go to work the next day. Not that we still don't have those feelings for one another. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is if you've been married for any length of time, you understand that that whole stuff just kind of settles away. Now, once in a while, it'll raise its head, but for the most part, it just settles away. And you begin to realize, wow, marriage isn't just about emotions. Marriage isn't just about, about how somebody looks. See, that's the problem with society today. They look at the commitment of marriage and they go, oh, no way. I don't want that. I want to be free to go do whatever I want to do. I don't want to be restrained. I want to keep my options open. And young people today are facing the fear of commitment at incredible levels. That's why we're seeing people, you know, in their 30s and 40s and are still single. Without the gift of singleness. Which spells problems. And unfortunately, without that commitment, that understanding of the marriage commitment, if it's just all about romance, you're really settling for a cheap counterfeit to God's ideal. Listen to what Proverbs says. I'll just read a couple verses here about marriage, about, about a relationship within marriage. It says in Proverbs 5, verses 15 to 19, Drink waters out of the, your own cistern and running waters out of your own well. What does that mean? You know what, that's, that's kind of poetic language to say, you know what, have your own wife. Don't be going out there. He goes on, he says, let your fountain be dispersed abroad in rivers of, of, of waters in the street. Let them be your own, be only yours and not for strangers. In other words, your fountain is your ability to procreate. Let that only be for your wife. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. And let her be as a loving hind and, and pleasant roe. And let her breast satisfy you at all times. And be ravished always with her love. Very romantic, poetic language there describing marriage. Proverbs 18.22 says, Whoever finds a wife finds a good thing. And you obtain favor from the Lord. 
Matthew or Proverbs 19:14 A wise wife is from the Lord. 1 Peter 3:7 3, calls marriage the grace of life. It's kind of like the cherry on top. So the disciples here are concluding, man, if this commitment is so big, ah, it's better not even to get involved. And I'm telling you, and Jesus is saying, no, just the opposite. Because it is such a strong commitment, and because you are together with this person for life, that's what makes it so ideal. But when they say it's not good to get married, that's basically what they're saying, the disciples in verse 10. It's better just to stay stay single. They're not really having the proper view of marriage. They don't have the proper attitude. But that reflects the common attitude even today among our young people. If I've got to get in this deal and stay in it for life, man, I can't imagine that. People aren't willing to marry, and they don't understand the reason for marriage itself. So they don't get into marriage for the right reasons. That's part of the problem. They pursue romantic and you know feelings and emotions and all this stuff, and it's all based on how somebody looks. So they go through the grocery store, and they're looking at the magazine cover, and they're saying, yeah, that's the one I want. Where is she or where is he? And they go the rest of their life looking for the ideal person that they don't even realize is a photoshopped photograph of somebody. They don't even look that way in real life. I mean, have you ever seen some of these movie people without all their makeup? I mean, some of them are just, you know, they're not very pleasant. And yet you look at them on the screen and you're like, wow. Or on the magazine cover or whatever. See, that's Satan's little trick. If you're a young person here and you're not married yet, you're single, go for character and virtue every time. Don't just focus on looks. Don't just focus on those emotional feelings that sooner or later are going to fade away. Find somebody that has the same spiritual virtue and character and beliefs as you. And if you don't think that's important, trust me, it is. I've seen so many people come together and they they come together from two polarized views. One's maybe a a, a Christian and they're really gung-ho for the Lord and the other one's, you know, totally out the lunch spiritually. And they try to come together and make a marriage work? This is not going to happen. And I would even say this. I would even say, find a Christian, if you're a Christian and you're seeking to get married, find a Christian who's in your same Religious belief. The youth pastor, I used to deal with young kids once in a while, and they'd say, you know, oh, well, you know, I met this girl, and, you know, one of the first things they knew I was going to ask them, was she a Christian? Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, where'd she go to church? Well, she, you know, they, 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 don't, they just go on Easter and, and uh, Christmas, but, you know, they go. Well, what kind of church are we talking about here? 
Well, you know, and then for the sake of argument, we'll just, you know, they go to X church or whatever. Usually it was a Catholic church. And they're a Christian. Well, they say they are. And as we began to unfold it, they began to realize this person's not any more a Christian than a man of the moon. But because they're so enthralled with the person, they want them to be a Christian. So they make every excuse to start dating them, and then they, they start an emotional bond with somebody, and that emotional bond, you know, it just kind of unfolds, and eventually, you know, they're, they're, they're like this with that person who's a non-believer. If you get married for emotional reasons, you're in big trouble. If you go against what God's standard is concerning marriage, you're in for a rough ride. We've talked to a lot of couples who did that. And it's usually one of them trying to hold the relationship together. One of them trying to do what's right in the eyes of God. It's difficult. Not that it can't be done, but it's difficult. So you have to heed what God says when it comes to marriage, when it comes to divorce, because you know what? He is the authority on it. He's the one that came up with this. So he says, basically, in verse 10, the disciples say, well, if this is the deal, if this is so serious, uh, I don't know if I want to go there, which isn't really the right reason. Marriage is a wonderful thing. You know, I was one of these people before I got married. I'm Paul, man. I got the gift of singleness. I'll be single to the day I die, serving God. And then my wife-to-be walked into our church one Sunday. Couldn't keep my eyes off her, even though I was shy. It took me weeks to even talk to her. She thought I was a total idiot. You can ask her. She did. Found out a little more about her, and then I found out, wow, she's been married before. I'll cross her off my list. Before she was a, a believer, she was in a bad situation I mean I was so bad I was just so I'll tell you this story we were over at her house she, her and Crystal moved from Modesto or wherever and some of the guys not me but some of the guys in the church helped her move in and so she as an act of grace and, and, and love invited the guys over to her apartment to cook them dinner so there's probably six or seven of us went over, and I was invited. I don't know why, because I didn't help her move, but I wanted to go anyway. So I figured away over there, you know. The guys were like, yeah, you weren't there on Saturday when we were helping her move. Well, you know, I'm the youth pastor, so just relax. So. <laughs> this was my mentality, okay? I was sitting in her small apartment at her kitchen table, and she was in the kitchen cooking. So I had a direct view of her. And we're talking about stuff. You know what came out of my mouth? Here's what came out of my mouth. Well, I don't know about you, but I would never marry a divorced woman. <laughs> the guys are looking at me like, are you nuts? <laughs> I'll never forget what she said. She just calmly continued to cook, and she looked over, and she goes, you, you never know, I may be the one. <laughs> Boy. You know what? It's the grace of God. 
It's the grace of God that, that I ever got over that hurdle to come to a point in an uncompromised fashion with the Word of God. Say, you know what? This is okay. This is okay. And, you know, I thought I was going to be single until the Lord came back. And that's what he closes off here in verse 11. He said to them, you know what? Not everyone can receive that. Not everybody can be single. Not everybody can just say, okay, if that's the commitment of marriage, I'm not going to be committed. I thought I could be committed as a single person. I mean, that was my life. The church was my life. I just lived at the church 24-7 around you know, youth groups and, and adult Sunday school workers. That's all I did. Seven days a week. I didn't, I didn't, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't have a lot of downtime to just sit there and fantasize about marriage or about a lot of things. So it was a good situation for me. But when I met my wife, boy, everything changed. All of a sudden I realized, <laughs> I guess I don't have to get this signal, I need to get married. And that's what it is. Singleness is a gift that God gives to some. But God has made a majority of us for marriage. And you know what? I would never, I would never, I could never go back to single life again, ever. That's really the way I feel about it. First of all, you would not want to see me dressed if it wasn't for my wife. I mean, before, when I was single, the poor ladies in the church, man, they'd try to come over, and they'd buy me clothes, and I'd get the shirts and the pants mixed up, and I'd be up there with, you know, one, and they're like, you're just hopeless. I'm colorblind. I have a hard time matching stuff. Well, my wife does this great. Every Sunday morning, everything's laid out. This is what you're wearing. Okay. No argument. Just do it. She's a helpmate. Well, Jesus says here, not everybody can handle that. And he, he closes here, and we'll close with this. He says there are eunuchs. Eunuchs, basically, those who do not engage in sexual activity with the opposite sex. That's what that means. And he says some were that way from their mother's womb, from birth. Somehow they were sexually underdeveloped or, or malformed, whatever, but they were incapable of having sexual relationships. And then he says, some of them were that way from birth. Some of them have been made eunuchs by men. You have to understand in that culture, they would, some leaders would have harems, hundreds of women. And they had somebody to take care of these women. And a lot of times, these people that took care of the harem were men. Well, to be in that position... Obviously, if you're just a normal man, it would be a very tempting situation to be surrounded by hundreds of beautiful women. So they would actually be made eunuchs. They would be castrated. And that's what their calling was. And that's what they grew up to be. And they would use these people to watch over their group of, of women that they had. And so he says, you can't, some people can't deal, deal with this. Some have been eunuchs from birth. Some have been made eunuchs. But then he says, some have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean that 
they castrated themselves. What that means is spiritually, they've, they've, God's given them a gift of singleness, and they've been able to set aside that desire and, and, and everything, and there's people like that. It's not the majority, but there are people like that. And for the sake of God's kingdom, they are able to set that whole thing aside, and they can engage in the things of God and not the things of physical here on earth so much. And so it's, it's very important for us to understand that. But for the majority of us, marriage is something that we should celebrate. Don't look at it as, oh, man, you know, one man, one woman, 69 years. You've got to be kidding me. Don't look at it that way. Because it's to be celebrated by God. And I pray that that gives you an overall understanding. Now, you might be sitting here saying, well, what if, what if this happens in marriage? What if that happens? What if, what if I'm married to an organization and they leave and blah, blah, blah? Well, we're going to touch on that next week. But it doesn't cover that here in this passage. We have to go over to Corinthians for that. But we're going to close that out uh, next week. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word on marriage, on divorce. Thank you that it's so clear. It's not, it's not to be confusing Lord, you don't stutter. You make it very clear what your word says. Lord, we thank you that your word doesn't change, and neither do you. Lord, you state that you hate divorce. You still hate it. But, Lord, you also recognize that because of our sinfulness, it's something that does occur in our society. And so, Lord, we pray that today, even though it's not your ideal, Father, I pray that we would not go around with a condemning heart those who may have been through a divorce but, Lord, that we would look at the facts, look at the circumstances. And, Lord, sometimes there is occasion for that couple to be brought together. Sometimes they've already remarried and they have to move on. But, Lord, even in that, you, your gracious hand is at work. And, Father, they're not to be considered second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And, Father, if we're married here today, I pray that we would do everything we can to make our marriages stronger Lord, there's a constant battle between a husband and wife. That's just what happens as a result of sin. But Lord, help us to walk in the Spirit, as Ephesians says, that we will not carry out the deeds of the flesh, that we could put the other person, our spouse, ahead of ourselves and really desire to serve them as we serve you. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.